Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Forebearers. Episode 3, Boniface and Leoba. Last time, we focused on how England transformed from a small pagan country on the fringe of the old Roman Empire into the center of learning during the 600s and 700s, and we saw that the island became this strong church by the outside forces of Rome and Ireland that helped convert the island. Well, now we will hear of this missionary tide continuing. But instead of missionary work going to Great Britain, missionary work will be coming from it. Today we'll be talking about the most famous of those missionaries, a man who helped convert much of modern-day Germany, who earned the title the Apostle of Germany. That man is St. Boniface. Now, as a disclaimer, Boniface was not born with the name Boniface. He will actually get that name much later from Pope Gregory II, when he was commissioned as a papal missionary. Boniface was born with the name Winfrith. But since almost all of Boniface's friends' names start with a wi, and because my American ears think the name change is an improvement, we're just going to call him Boniface all the way through. Now, we don't know exactly where or when Boniface was born, probably around 675 or 680 AD, somewhere in Exeter. This means he was almost the same age as our friend Bede from the last episode, although the two would have little, if any, direct interaction. Boniface grew up in a decently well-to-do family for his time. As he grew, he had a lot of contact with priests and other churchmen, and soon he'd fallen in love with the legends and stories of saints, and he dreamed of doing that religious work himself. According to one of Boniface's biographies, his father was not keen on this idea. It's a story that's very reminiscent of Martin Luther and many other important church figures. Boniface's father had hoped he would take over the family estate, but as much as his father tried, Boniface could not be swayed. He had heard the stories of St. Peter and St. Patrick and St. Augustine and had made up his mind. And finally his father gave in, and Boniface's family sent him to a local monastery for an education. Just like Bede, Theodore, and Gregory before them, Boniface was very gifted, and that was clear to anyone who met him. Soon the small local monastic school he had attended was not enough for him, and he had to move on. He joined another larger monastery and school, and before long he was teaching the very classes he had taken before. At the age of 30, Boniface was an ordained priest, and everyone could see that he was a rising star in the area. He quickly had the notice of the local bishops and even the Archbishop of Canterbury. Soon those bishops and the Archbishop began looking for places that Boniface could best serve the church in England. But Boniface was not content to stay in the British Isles. He had his mind set on further shores. Boniface had heard the stories of Celtic missionaries from Ireland traveling in all directions to spread the gospel around the world, and he could not shake that vision. Most of all, he dreamed of traveling back to where his Saxon ancestors had come from, Germany. Reluctantly, the local bishops gave him permission to leave on his first assignment, to join another veteran missionary in the country of Frisia. You see, Boniface was not the first English Christian to have a desire for missionary work. When he was just a child, another missionary named Wilfred had started preaching and teaching in Frisia, which is right about the area of the modern-day Netherlands. This region was right on the border of where the Christian kingdoms met pagan ones. On one side was the Christian, at least nominally, Christian Frankish kingdom. On the other side was the pagan German tribes. Unfortunately for Wilfred and his mission, 
Many of the Frisians saw Christianity as just a way for the Franks to exert influence. Sadly, some of the Frankish rulers thought this too. Because of this, Wilfred's work never made much lasting progress. In 690, Wilfred passed it on to his successor, Willibrord, who sadly, unlike Boniface, was stuck with that name for life. Willibrord worked hard to get financial and political support from the Franks for his missionary work, and began to establish a church that could support itself in Frisia. Things were going very well for the new church body. But in 710, the Franks faced a dynastic crisis, which distracted them from supporting Willibrord. Then a Frisian pagan king named Radbod saw an opportunity to throw off the Frankish influence, and quickly took over and expelled most of the churches and priests while the Frankish patrons were away. Just like that, most of the work of these English missionaries in Frisia was lost. It was right after Radbod's attack against the churches that Boniface started his missionary career. He had been given a blessing by his local bishop, so he and a few good friends crossed the English Channel and landed in Frisia in 716. They had very high hopes, and even though they had heard of the troubles that the church was having, they were ready to face those challenges. They were young, enthusiastic, and totally inexperienced. Once Boniface and his small group arrived, they discovered the situation was far worse than they had thought. Radbon had done a thorough job of destroying churches and monasteries. He had destroyed all he could and forced congregations to disband or go underground. What was left of the church was totally leaderless. Even Willibrord, who they'd hoped to meet, had been forced into hiding. Boniface tried to help however he could, and was even able to manage an audience before Radbod. But Radbod refused any of the requests or demands from Boniface and sent him away. Radbod then continued to promote the old pagan religions. Boniface tried to help in other small ways, but soon realized there was little he could do. He returned to England without hardly any tangible gains, defeated at almost every turn. While Boniface may not have won any tangible victories in his mission work, he learned a very important lesson that he would not forget. If the church wanted to thrive and grow, it would need support and organization. Zeal, enthusiasm, and intelligence were important, and even necessary, but for the mission to have a lasting success, it would need planning, training, and administrating as well. There's an old saying for military work. Amateurs talk strategy. Experts talk logistics. Boniface learned that this was true for missionary work as well. As we will see, his combination of zeal and pragmatism will help make him such a successful missionary. Boniface stayed in England for several years, and his countrymen pressed him to stay permanently. He was smart, hard-working, and likable. It was no surprise that he was elected to be the abbot of the monastery that he'd spent much of his time during his studies. Even though this was an honor, Boniface declined. His bishop, a man named Daniel, recognized where Boniface's passions lay. So instead of stopping Boniface's decisions as he could have, he found another candidate and supported Boniface in his dreams of more missionary work. With Daniel's support and counsel, Boniface, now in his mid-thirties, left England on his journey to Rome. If Boniface would do mission work again, he wanted to have proper support and authority, so he figured nothing could provide more support and authority than the Pope himself. He left in the autumn of 718, and he would never see his home of England again. Boniface arrived in Rome that winter and set up an audience with Pope Gregory II. Gregory II was not a bad pope himself, and he lived up to his namesake fairly well. Gregory met with a young, excited English priest. But before he sent off some young priest to do missionary work, he wanted to make sure Boniface was orthodox and trustworthy. Boniface stayed in Rome that winter and spring, and slowly a friendship grew between this English priest and the Roman bishop. By the summer, 
Gregory II trusted Boniface and gave him his first assignment. He was to be a missionary at large for the Pope, and his first placement would be Thuringia in central Germany. Once again, it will help if we set the scene a little bit. So let's step back and look at what Europe was like in the early 700s. We know some about England, but we should know a little bit about Germany as well. Now remember that for most of the existence of the Roman Empire, its boundaries were the Rhine River and the Danube River. This means that most of what is now Germany was never ruled by Rome, and therefore was never officially Christianized when Constantine Christianized the Roman Empire. So places like England, while the church may have been in bad shape before Augustine and Theodore, they still had some connection with Christianity going back to the time of Constantine. This was not the case in Germany. There had never been an organized attempt to evangelize it or to create any kind of a church in it. There had been some traveling Irish and Frankish preachers that had gone through it, but that was about it. And there were also many places that no Christian missionary had ever been to. Boniface arrived in Thuringia, Germany, and found it to be about what he'd expected. Thuringia had seen Irish missionaries come through before, but their missionary efforts had not been maintained. This meant that most Christians reached by the Irish had lapsed back into mixed paganism. The local priests were not well educated, and some of them were participating in the pagan rituals. To make matters worse for Boniface, no one paid him much attention, since these half-pagan priests did not recognize any authority in the Pope or the Church at large. Boniface once again knew he needed more organizational support, but this time he decided to look to the West and see if the Frankish kings would help him. So almost as soon as Boniface got to Thuringia, he left and made his way west. On his way back, he stopped in Frisia, the country of his first missionary attempt. However, things there were changing. Radbod, the scourge of the Christian church there, had died. And Willibrord, the archbishop there now, the one who Boniface had never had a chance to meet before, had come out of hiding. Now the two did get to meet. The church there was now growing, and Willibrord recognized the talent that Boniface brought with him, so he asked him to stay for several years to help. Boniface accepted. Now it confuses me, because one would think that Gregory, or someone back in Rome, would be upset that Boniface had just left his original field of duty, but apparently that was not the case. Pope Gregory II had given Boniface pretty wide parameters to do his mission work, and apparently trusted him to do as he saw fit. This ended up working very well for the church in Frisia. The two, Willibrord and Boniface, formed a kind of a missionary dream team. Willibrord, who was over 60, brought wisdom and experience. Boniface, in his early 40s, brought the ability and the energy. All the while, Boniface was able to learn more and more of how to organize a large-scale mission field. And even though this was not consistent with the original plan, the Pope couldn't argue with the results and supported them as he could. The two cleaned up the church well. They repaired the old buildings, set up schools for priests, monks, and nuns. They removed and punished corrupt priests and bishops, and helped heal the wounds that the persecution had brought. Things were going so well that Willibrord hoped Boniface would become his successor. But once again, Boniface could not be swayed. Willibrord tried repeatedly to convince Boniface to stay and help the new church, but Boniface still had his eyes on Germany. So in 722, after working for three years in Frisia, Boniface said goodbye to now his close friend Willibrord and returned to Germany. This time Boniface did not go back to Thuringia, his original German mission field, but went a short way to the east of there, to a region of Germany called Hesse. Hesse was unlike any mission field Boniface had ever been in before. There was no Christian church at all here, and there never had been. 
Boniface would be starting absolutely from scratch. But this time Boniface was much more experienced, and he had a plan. He started by focusing on several chiefs of local tribes. After several months, he made headway with two chieftain brothers, and they converted to Christianity. Soon, most of the tribe had been converted. This new tiny church body built a small wooden chapel, and Boniface decided it was now big enough to ask the Pope for more serious support. He sent a messenger to Rome. But when the messenger returned, the message from Pope Gregory simply told him to return to Rome immediately. So after less than a year in Hesse, Boniface was on the move again. I imagine it was hard for Boniface to leave his new little church. He had seen what happened to other newly started churches and must have feared that they might not last until he returned. When Boniface came back to Rome, he found that Gregory II had even greater plans for him. Gregory wanted to make Boniface a bishop. That would mean he'd be able to consecrate new priests and found new churches all by himself. However, before he did this, Gregory wanted to test Boniface's orthodoxy once again. So while Boniface met him, Gregory asked for a statement of his beliefs. Boniface, no doubt a little nervous, tried to answer but kept hesitating. He was not very good at speaking Latin, and Italian Latin of the day was already changing from the classical Latin of Rome that Boniface knew to the modern Italian spoken today. Finally, Boniface gave up and simply asked for a few days to write all his thoughts together. Gregory allowed it, and a few days later Boniface presented his beliefs in perfect, polished, clean, classical Latin. The Pope was impressed, and Boniface was made a bishop. Then the two men spent two days working out their strategy for evangelizing Germany. Boniface made his way back to Germany, but he took the long way around through the Frankish kingdom to pay a special visit to the Frankish ruler there, a man named Charles Martel. This is the same Charles Martel who would fight the Moors at the Battle of Tours, one of the most significant battles in history. Charles Martel was not terribly worried about the spiritual matters of his kingdom, though officially he was and his state was Christian. He was a pragmatic man of action and usually used the church for the advantage of the state. Regardless, he did see a political advantage in having his eastern neighbors convert to Christianity. So when Boniface arrived, Charles promised that he would support him however he could. Boniface now had the support of the Pope and the Franks. So a year after he had left it, he now returned to his infant church in Hesse. Not surprisingly, things were already falling apart. The people were returning to their old religion or mixing it with some strange form of Christianity. After spending some time returning his little church back to the straight and narrow, he began again the work of spreading the message to the surrounding area. This was not easy. The surrounding area was filled with Old Norse legends, sacred groves, rocks, and waterfalls. The local people were fully convinced of Thor, Odin, Frida, and wood spirits. Boniface tried again and again, but he could not get through to the local Germans. Finally, he was sick of it. He decided he was going to deal with these Norse gods once and for all. So he grabbed an axe, and with a group of followers, headed off to one of the most sacred pagan places, Thor's Oak. Boniface made it very well known to the surrounding area what he planned to do. He was going to cut the tree down and show how powerless these pagan gods were. So when he got to Thor's Oak to cut it down, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of native Germans there to watch him do it. Interestingly, they were not there to stop him, but to see what would happen. Most believed that he would be struck dead by a lightning bolt from Thor. So when Boniface started to hack away at the giant tree, most just waited to see the fireworks. Surprisingly, at least to them, none never came. 
When the giant tree finally fell to the ground, Boniface stood there with no ominously dark clouds over him. Instead of being very angry that some guy just cut down their sacred tree, they were actually all very impressed. The legend goes that Boniface then used the wood of this oak to build a chapel. Now, to modern ears, cutting down someone's sacred tree does not sound like a very nice thing to do. In fact, it seems downright intolerant of him. But people saw the world very differently back in the 8th century. And to Boniface and the other missionaries' credit, they usually tried to take evangelizing pretty slow, and they tried respecting customs as they could. But Boniface felt extreme measures were necessary. Not only that, but what Boniface did was still pretty dangerous. While Boniface may not have been worried about a lightning bolt striking him down, there was no guarantee that some zealous German would not stab him as he hacked away at this giant oak tree. Boniface took a risk, and in this case it paid off. But just to be clear, I don't recommend that modern Christians go around destroying other people's sacred trees. News of the incident with the tree spread throughout Germany, and though perhaps counterintuitively to us in the 21st century, it gave Boniface quite a lot of credibility to the German people. Boniface had been making some progress with the average Germans, and this blow to the pagan gods was just what they needed to be swayed to Christianity. Hessians started converting to Christianity en masse. One interesting side note is that this incident happened right around the time when Charles Martel was battling the Moors at the Battle of Tours. Some people speculate that without Boniface's work with the Germans on the eastern border of the Franks, Charles Martel would not have been able to safely focus on the west, where the Moors were coming up through Spain. And had Charles Martel lost the battle, the history of the medieval church would have been very different than it is. So after cutting down Thor's oak, the church was now quickly growing in Germany, but there was still a lot of sticky problems facing it. They were scattered and disunited, they had different customs and rules, and were all facing all sorts of new problems. How should the old Irish and these new Roman missionaries work together? How and when should Christians be allowed to marry pagans? How should those who have lapsed back into paganism be treated, or those who were reconverted? And while a little strange to us, but perhaps not so strange in tribal cultures, the important question of what degree of cousins are allowed to marry. To help answer all these questions, Boniface regularly kept in touch with Gregory II, and Gregory tried to help Boniface face the complex web of problems. But Boniface needed more than just advice to help the new church grow. He needed fellow workers. So he tried to get in contact with Charles Martel and the Frankish Church. He hoped that the Frankish Church, though somewhat corrupt and in need of good old-fashioned reforming itself, would send him priests, monks, nuns, and teachers. But all his requests fell on deaf ears. He was hardly able to get any support from the Franks at all who were busy with their own affairs. So Boniface looked somewhere else, and this time sent word back to his old home country of England. While the Franks did not really know or care much about this English bishop in the German lands, Boniface was a rock star back in England. Boniface had kept in contact with his friends back home through letters, and they'd been cheering him on throughout all his trials. So when he asked for help, he got a flood of English church workers to come to central Germany. The flood started in the 730s and became a torrent in the 740s. Scholars and teachers, priests, monks, and nuns all flocked to help Boniface in his mission. Boniface sent them to found monasteries, convents, and schools across the country. The native Germans, instead of being annoyed with this new flood of people, were greatly impressed. Before this, the Irish missionaries had preached and left, but these missionaries were different. They were in it for the long haul, and intended to become permanent parts of the community. 
Boniface's strategy was to make each monastery a little mission outpost, from which the local population could be educated, preached to, and the local church strengthened. With the help of his countrymen, and women, Boniface's strategy worked. Many of these English compatriots of Boniface became famous in their own right. One of these was a nun named Leoba, who became famous as a paragon of wisdom and virtue throughout Europe during this time. She's an interesting character herself, and one of Boniface's most trusted friends. In fact, they were so close that Boniface asked that they be buried side by side when they died. Such was their friendship that I think we should learn a little bit about her as well. Leobo was related to Boniface, probably his niece. Boniface, who wrote a lot of letters to a lot of people, kept in touch with her from a young age. Leoba herself was educated in a monastery, and she could read and write and had a very sharp mind in general. She arrived, and right away Boniface made her an abbess of a convent in the town of Taberbishofsheim, which is all one word in case you were wondering. She was a master of the biblical writings and of the early church fathers' writings, and skilled in leadership and wisdom. Soon throughout all Germany she gained esteem. The bishops of Germany would often come to her for advice, and her opinion was always respected. As well as just generally being a great model of faith, there is also a short biography written about 50 years after her death. It includes some amusing stories, which, whether you believe them or not, are still a lot of fun to hear about. In one story, we get to hear a little bit about Leoba's personality. When she was an abbess, that is, someone in charge of a nunnery, she would have young nuns read the Bible to her as she fell asleep. That's a good practice even today, except now you can use an iPhone instead of a nun. The story says that when the young nuns would read to Leoba, if they ever made a mistake, she would automatically correct them without opening her eyes. She did it so consistently that the young nuns started to test her, waiting until they were sure she was asleep, and then suddenly making a small error to see if she would notice. Supposedly, they never got away with a single error. There's also another story where a local unmarried girl became pregnant and miscarried. She then left her baby at the doorstep of the chapel, and the townspeople found it. They were convinced that it was one of the nuns in Leoba's convent. So began a great scandal in the town, until finally Leoba prayed to find whose baby it really was. Then, flames appeared around the girl, who finally confessed. Everyone rejoiced that Leoba had saved the honor of the convent, and then the author of this story says about the girl, She did not deserve to escape scot-free, and for the rest of her life she remained in the power of the devil. And this is considered a happy ending in the early Middle Ages. Yikes. But beyond that hopefully apocryphal story, there was also more clearly documented achievements. One of these was the friendship that Leoba made in her later life with Charlemagne's wife Hildegard. Hildegard would regularly ask Leoba for spiritual advice and counsel, and when Leoba died in 780, her royal friend wept dearly for her. Leoba outlived Boniface by over 20 years, but when she did die in 780, she was buried next to him, just as Boniface had asked. But we're getting a little ahead of Boniface's story, so let's return to Boniface in around the 730s, who now has an army of countrymen helping this German church. The church grew so much that Boniface, as just a bishop, was not enough. Gregory II died in 731, and his successor, Gregory III, decided Boniface had enough experience that it was time he leveled up. So Gregory sent Boniface a pallium, and Bishop Boniface became Archbishop Boniface. This gave him authority over all the German lands, of new churches and old churches. 
Now, as Archbishop, Boniface had to organize the church, decide where the bishop should go, and where he should have his home base. He laid out clear boundaries for most of the existing bishops and founded several more bishoprics. He then made Mainz his official seat, and it would be the center of the German Catholic Church for over a thousand years. Through the 730s and 740s, the hard work of administrating, uniting, reconciling, encouraging, and teaching took place. The church grew organized, well-grounded, and strong. In 742, the first German council took place between German clergy, and two more in the following years happened. After guiding the church for 20 years, in 752, Boniface felt like he'd done all he could. Now an old man over 60, and possibly over 70, he asked for a successor to the Archbishop of Mainz so that he could return one last time to his first missionary field, Phrygia. On the trip between Phrygia and Rome, Boniface and his small retinue were ambushed and killed by highway robbers. No one knows if these robbers were just looking for money, or if they targeted Boniface specifically as a missionary. Regardless, Boniface was almost instantly considered a martyr and a saint. Everyone can agree Boniface had rare talent. He was the third of three great administrators of his time, after Gregory and Theodore, that made the church in the Middle Ages a well-established organization. But Boniface had done even more than the first two. Both Theodore and Gregory had taken something already established and made it into something better. Boniface came to Germany with almost nothing. He had started in a place with almost no church at all, and had helped start a church strong enough to weather the hardships of the Middle Ages. His work would alter European and world history through his influence on German faith and German culture. And if you have any German heritage yourself, Boniface also likely affected your history. If anyone is German and Christian, it's totally possible you can trace your family's faith back to this man and his work. Thanks for joining me in learning about Boniface and Leoba. Next time on The Faithful Forebears, we'll move a little bit west, from Germany to France. We'll follow another English scholar, Alcuin. Alcuin would become the chief architect in a mini-renaissance of the arts and learning under Charlemagne, before Europe would take a dark turn in the 9 and 10 hundreds. So join me next time. Thanks for listening.